Let's uh, read the verses again that we're going to be studying tonight. It's from verse 10 of chapter 2 in Hebrews. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Well, it's really, uh, I think it's really appropriate that we are in these uh, verses in Hebrews and thinking about the, the nature of the sun as we come up uh, to this Advent uh, time of year when uh, our focus is on Bethlehem. Because this is bringing us back several steps to, to ask the question, why was Bethlehem necessary? St. Anselm of, of Canterbury wrote a, a very uh, well-known and very influential book, uh, of course it had a Latin name, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man? Why did God have to become man? Uh, is what he was asking. And that's what we're asking tonight. Uh, Why did the Son of God uh, have to become the God-man? Well, the person of Christ is bound up with the work of Christ. Uh, He could not do his work of salvation uh, except by becoming the God-man. Some of the great debates in the early church were about how this key question of the divinity of the Son fitted with the humanity that he took on. Uh, There were those who denied that uh, he was truly God, and they were called the the Arians, not not aliens, but the Arians, or the semi-Arians. And they wanted to say, well, he is really, 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 really exalted. He's the chief of all of God's creation, but he is not uh, God himself. And that's the position of the Jehovah's Witnesses today. And uh, so I'm saying they're becoming ever more aggressive, ever more subtle in their approaches. And if Christ is not God, he cannot save you because of the, the size of our sin. Our sin is so uh, significant. It's, our sin has got infinite dimensions. Why so? Because we are obliged to worship an infinite and eternal God. And our refusal to do that means that our sin is an infinite offence against God. Think on that next time you tend to minimise your own offences and trivialise breaking of the commandments or or ceasing to uh, give God honour rather than self. It is a sin of infinite Proportions and nothing less than an infinite sacrifice 
will atone for sin that is so heinous because it's directed against God. It's the withholding of worship from the eternal God. So tell that next time that the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, tell them, uh, which is always my tact, that they are shortchanging God. And they are robbing sinners of salvation because one who is not God cannot save. We need a divine sacrifice to deliver us from hell and death. Salvation is of the Lord. But there are also those who wanted to deny that Jesus was truly human. And they argued that, well, he, he seemed to be human, but uh, it was really just a guise that Jesus was taking. And I think they were, they were wanting to honor Jesus by uh, accenting his divinity and making out that uh, his human uh, activities and his, his human appearance was just uh, a semblance. And that too jeopardizes our salvation. So, this is a really, this is a Christmas message. Although it doesn't maybe feel like it, it's a Christmas message. And some of the the most theological uh, hymns that we sing are Christmas hymns. Heart of Herald Angels is a fantastic uh, Christmas hymn. I I felt it was just probably too far away from Christmas for us to be singing Heart of Herald Angels on the 2nd of December. But it's, it's really packed with Theology, true God of true God. This is the babe. Light of light, eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. The true God has become true man. He's not uh, abhorred, he's, he's not uh, bypassed the normal, natural means of humanity coming into the earth. He is aboard not the virgin's womb. The divine and the human nature of the son whom angels held brought together. Well, we're going to look at uh, the scandal of the incarnation as far as the, the Hebrew uh, readers were concerned. The uh, aim, the purpose of the incarnation Uh, the fittingness of the incarnation, of the appropriateness of the incarnation, and then finally the wonder of the incarnation. Okay, we're breaking a rule. Four points, not three points tonight in our sermon. The incarnation uh, was something which uh, was a scandal in the eyes of some. One of the the rather irritating features of the NIV version uh, in all of its revisions is that it tends to miss out on some of the little uh, connecting words that there are in the Greek. And it does that here. It's guilty of it in verse 10. Uh, There should be, uh, at the beginning of verse 10, a for, which connects with what has gone before. Uh, For in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God. So what the writer to the Hebrews is going on to say about uh, the incarnation, about the aptness of the incarnation, uh, is linked back to this whole business of Jesus being greater than the angels. Uh, This assertion that Jesus is better than this grouping that the Hebrews were inclined to to venerate. They'd been influenced, we think, suggesting, by this strain of of, uh, thought that had come through Judaism from the the sect in the the Dead Sea area, uh, which involved angelic worship. 
Uh, they believe that in the, the future coming messianic kingdom, it would be angels that had an exalted position and would rule. And therefore, because of that, because of that, 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 that way of thinking, it seemed to be just a bit embarrassing to think of a, a redeemer who was human, and so very humanly human, who was born in a stable. The rumours of the circumstances of his birth to an unmarried woman, his work as a tradesman in the hillbilly village of Nazareth, that was a byword for being pretty much uh, no good. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And for those who were closer to home, there was familiarity with his family. Uh, we know his brothers, his sisters, they said, uh, in that way that people do when they wanted to kind of uh, patronize someone and ignore uh, the significance of what they have to say or contribute. But it was the way that the incarnation ended that scandalized people. The, the, the death on the cross was not the way that they thought the script should be written. A crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews. It was folly to the Greeks. 1 Corinthians 1.23 And so the challenge that the writer has now in the face of Hebrews who tended to compare Jesus uh, unfavorably to angels is to show them that the incarnation, the Son of God taking flesh, was actually wonderfully gloriously appropriate, indeed essential. Not only was it appropriate, there was no other way than for him to become true man. His taking flesh wasn't a mark of inferiority to angels or anyone else. It was a, a mark of, of glory. As a result of his accomplishments, he is now crowned with glory and honour because he tasted death for everyone. But for a time at least, all these, uh, all these uh, could see was the ordinariness of a human Messiah. The scandal of the incarnation. Secondly, the aim of the incarnation. What was the aim of the incarnation? According to this passage in Hebrews, the aim of the Son of God becoming man was to make sons of those who had been slaves. A glorious, glorious aim. We were slaves and he has come to make us sons and daughters of the king. Heart the herald angels again. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Jesus came from the heights of glory to raise us up to exalted humanity. We see in verse 14 our original lost condition. Uh, we were those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is always the, 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 the pairing of, of sonship is not with uh, being an orphan. Jesus, on one occasion, speaks about, I will not leave you as orphans. But it's nearly always in, in Scripture, it's from slaves to sons. From slavish fear to the, the liberty of being sons of the living God. And that's the direction here. Uh, what's a little bit different is that usually it's a slave to sin. It's expressed in, in being in bondage to, to sinful instincts, sinful patterns. 
But interestingly, it's a slave to the fear of death. A slave to the fear of death from which we have been delivered. And the devil, uh, verse 14, is the one who has the power of death. We're slaves to the fear of death, and the devil is the one who has the power of death. Now, what's that not saying? It's not saying that the devil is somehow uh, a kind of independent power, uh, autonomous, uh, equal and opposite to God. You know, there's the dark side and the light side. Not saying that at all. The devil is a creature, a fallen angel. The devil's activity is circumscribed. The devil's future is not a happy future. It's a bleak future. God is absolute in his sovereignty. The devil doesn't have any power that's absolute. Verse 10 tells us that it is uh, for him, that is God, and through him everything exists. God is a source of everything. And God is a sovereign power over all things. Satan's not an equal and opposite God. You have that in some religions. You don't have it in Christianity. The devil is a creature. God has power over him. The sphere of death is the judgment that God pronounced on humanity because of our rebellion in Adam. And insofar as it was Satan that uh, subverted humanity, and as a result of that, death came in, Satan can be said to have the power of death, but he is no equal to God. But although the power that Satan has through death is not an absolute power, it's a real power. In every engagement with death, every engagement between humans and death throughout history, death has always won. His victory rate is 100%. 100 out of every 100 people born will die. And that brings a fear into it. Sterling Moss, the, the, uh, the, racing, the Formula One racing car driver of the 50s, was it? Uh, would drive Formula One cars uh, up to 150, 170 miles an hour. So uh, he was in a very... Uh, scary situations very often and at the peak of his crew he said I'm afraid of death I know it means going to meet one's maker and one shouldn't be afraid of that but I am I don't know if if Sterling Moss claimed to be a Christian if you know you can tell me after but uh, if he wasn't a Christian then he was wrong to say that because if you're not a believer then fear of death is appropriate Uh, It's appropriate for the reasons that he gives that after death you meet with your maker. It is appointed to all men once to die and then the judgment. The writer tells us that fear of death leads to slavery. What does that mean? Fear of death leads to slavery. This is what um, one of the, the writer commentators, Philip Edcombe Hume, says. The lives enslaved by Satan, instead of being filled with the joy of living here and hereafter, the joy of, of, of life, are dominated and doomed by the fear of death. And this enslavement is lifelong. 
it blights the whole of existence. People work furiously to dull their consciousness of death in a whole uh, number of ways. So there's this huge emphasis on cheating death, living for the moment, uh, some of the terms used, bucket lists. Okay, these are lists of things to do before, and we're talking about kicking the bucket before you die, uh, things that you want to fill your life with before uh, you end. Um, carpe diem, you see that in names of houses or posters in, in rooms and so on. Seize the day. Live for the moment. Robert Herrick's poem, Gather Ye Rosebuds, uh, is in the, the um, film, it's a kind of theme almost to the, the film uh, Dead Poet Society. Gather ye rosebuds while you may, old time is still a-flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. The glorious lamp of heaven, the sun, the higher he's a-getting, the sooner will his race be run, and nearer he's to setting. That, that poem communicates something of the anxiety of someone who is not saved, who therefore has no hope for the hereafter, and feels that life is running down. The, the hourglass is moving on, and therefore gather your rosebuds while you may. And there's a thin line, isn't there, between uh, the positive side of, of living life to the full and, on the other hand, the constant pressure of knowing that when this life is over, there is only fear and dread on the other side. And so people live anxiously in the fear of death, moving them to self-preservation and immediate comfort. And it's from that, that slavery to anxious fear that Jesus has come to deliver us. His purpose is to make sons of slaves. His project is to bring many sons to glory. This is the gospel, to make sons of slaves. This is the, great, this is the, 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 the arch point, the apex of all that is ours in Christ. We are brought into his family. There is nothing better than this. It gets no better than this. From being alienated, from being on the outside, from, being, from living anxiously, knowing that, that life is ticking down and one day we will die and then enter the abyss, we're transformed and brought into a family. Jesus is my elder brother. God is my father. God's people are my brothers and sisters. I live secure in the knowledge that there is life, glorious life, beyond the grave. This is the good news of the gospel. And it's something that we ought always to get excited about. We ought to, to live like, like uh, the Apostle John, who lived to a, a ripe old age. I think he was always excited by the doctrine of adoption. In his first letter, uh, he, he writes, What a manner of love God has bestowed on us. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are, he gasps. There's this note of amazement uh, coming across his letter down through the centuries. Death is no longer the end, it's the beginning. It's that entry into our future hope. 
As children of God, we have an inheritance. Christian faith is future-orientated. Uh, we, were, we were saying that this morning very much. Uh, we are, of all people, those who look forward to the glory days ahead. Things are going to get better, friends, because we have an inheritance uh, stored up in heaven that nothing can destroy. And the Bible teaches that uh, our adoption as sons has got ramifications for the whole of creation. Because just as we will be uh, brought into glorious new resurrection bodies, so the creation will be brought into a glorious new future. Romans 8, 19, 21, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, folks. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's why the Son of God had to become man. That's why it's gloriously uh, appropriate. That's the aim of the incarnation that those who were slaves will be made sons. And so far from being inappropriate, uh, it is wonderfully appropriate. It's wonderfully fitting that this is how uh, it should be worked out, that God should become the God-man. In the first place, it was the, the plan of a sovereign God who never makes mistakes and whose plan is always unfolding to his glory. That's what Paul means uh, by the, the god uh, for whom, this is verse 10, uh, for whom and through whom everything exists. He's the sovereign. He's the king. He's in control of everything. He was in control of the grand design that his son should take on our humanity. But the writer also gives logical reasons why it was necessary for the Son of God to be made man. And in the first place, uh, it speaks of him being, uh, verse 10 again, the author of their salvation, or perhaps better, the pioneer of their salvation. I don't know if you've got a different version. You might have pioneer uh, in verse 10 instead of author. And the idea of a pioneer is important. William Barclay is not always the, the, the best and most reliable authority to turn to, but he's very useful uh, in, in background in Greek. And he, he writes this, uh, he says, an archigo, uh, a pioneer, is someone who begins something in order that others may enter into it. He begins a family in order that someday others may be born into the family. He founds a city in order that others may someday dwell in the city. An archigo is one who blazes the trail for others to follow. Pioneer blazes the trail, goes ahead so that others who are like him, and that's the, that's the point here, that there is a, a, a sharedness of nature, can share the privileges that he's gone ahead to obtain. When the Eilir, uh, you know, the, the ship that was taking the, how many was it? It was 200 and... Uh, 284 people uh, were carried on the Isle Air from Kyle to Stornoway, and that was the one, one of the great tragedies of last century. 
after the First World War had finished and these sailors were going back home to Lewis, the, the ship went aground on rocks uh, 20 yards away from uh, the land. And 100, uh, sorry, 205 lives were lost that night when the Isle Air uh, hit the rocks on New Year's Day 1919. 79 people, amazingly, did survive. And the way that uh, 40 of them survived was, was in this manner. A man called John McLeod uh, somehow or other managed to get onto the, the cliff uh, bottom, cliff edge, the cliff um, rocks. And he had taken a rope with him, from uh, a rope that was still attached to the Isle Air, to the, the, the stricken ship. And having managed to get ashore, he fastened the, ro- the, the rope to a large rock. And 39 others that night were able to use that rope to follow John McLeod to the safety of dry land, the relative safety uh, of the rocks. That night, for the 39 men who went down the rope, John McLeod was the pioneer of their salvation in earthly terms. He went ahead, he blazed the trail to safety in order that others might follow in uh, his footsteps. So it was necessary for the Son of God to become like us, that he might be a pioneer for others to follow. Uh, The incarnation was fitting because the Son of God had to be perfected by what he suffered. And that's that's a challenging expression, isn't it? Because immediately we think that it's implying that Jesus was not perfect. But that's not what it means. It means that uh, there was a, he, he had to come to a, a completion. He suffered uh, to obtain righteousness for us in human form. Uh, he needed to come through all the suffering and the temptation that we face so that when he came to that last moment on the cross, he was being offered up as the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, having come through all of our human challenges. He was at journey's end in that sense. And also, of course, uh, he suffered as a penalty. Verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity that he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Why did the Son of God become man? That he might die, is one answer. That he might taste death. That he might taste death as the one who had come right through all of the temptations and challenges that humans face to be the perfect sacrifice for those who follow him. And that's what we call justification. Justification is how we are made acceptable to God. And the incarnation was essential uh, to justify us because only someone who is human, as we were saying earlier, can be a true substitute. Sanctification is different from justification. Justification is an act. Sanctification is a process. Sanctification is how we're becoming more and more like Jesus. 
It's an ongoing thing. And the incarnation was also essential for our sanctification. Verse 11. Both the one who makes men holy. That's Jesus. And making holy is what we call sanctification. It's making us more like him. Are of the same family. We are of the same family of Jesus because he took on our humanity. He came into our family. And it's important for sanctification. I heard it expressed in this way once that the the Holy Spirit, we usually think of the Holy Spirit as the agent in sanctification here. It's the Son that's spoken of. But the Holy Spirit is quarrying from Jesus the resources that we need to become more like him. The Holy Spirit is finding in Jesus human holiness, a righteousness that has been carved out in the hurly-burly, in the conflict and challenge, the sadness and darkness of human existence, because Jesus became human and the Spirit is applying all that he finds in Jesus to us. The history of Jesus' victory over sin is applied to our lives by the Spirit through the Word as we meditate on it, as we obey it. It was essential for our sanctification that Jesus come into our scene. Finally, we're going to just finish on note of wonder mind and heart expanding reflection on what this all means that Jesus is our elder brother there are three quotations from the Old Testament and they follow on from what the writer says about Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters that's incredible Because Jesus has every right to be ashamed of us as brothers and sisters. Why would he not be ashamed of us? How pathetic we are so often. How mean and petty and constantly failing we are. And yet, he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He comes to identify with us. And a writer quotes from three Old Testament passages that that really just open up the wonder of all of this. And the first one is from the psalm that we sung, Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. Uh, In fact, I don't know, if I had to pick out one of the pieces of the Old Testament that is so strikingly messianic, I suppose Isaiah 53 is hard to go past, but Psalm 22 is so amazing. You have the the, the zooming in of the, the, uh, the feeling of one who is being uh, tortured on the cross, being surrounded by opponents, the, the detail of his garments being gambled for by soldiers, and so on. But the psalm opens with words which Jesus himself uh, cries from the cross in his time of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it goes on and, as I say, it describes the, the, the passion, the, the the horrible 
suffering that is unique to crucifixion. But then towards the end of the psalm, there's an amazing change in atmosphere. And the reason, of course, is that we, we have moved from the cross to the resurrection. And the end of the psalm is speaking about the, the risen Christ. And Christ has come now to dwell in the church of the redeemed. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. This is amazing stuff. In the presence of the congregation, in the ecclesia it is, uh, in the church, I will sing your praises. I will declare your name to my brothers. And this is the reality of Christian worship. That Jesus, the Son of God, is in church with us. He is singing uh, over your shoulder when we are praising God. He is declaring the Father to those who are his brothers and sisters, those of whom he is not ashamed. He is the sweet singer of Israel in the midst of the gathered church. And we say, church, ho hum. You know, we miss the plot, don't we, so, so badly because Jesus, if Jesus is, is the one who is at the center of praise, that makes it all so very different, doesn't it? That's the, the reality, the spiritual reality of, of worship. He has come close to us in our worship. Then the next quote's from Isaiah. And the context is one of apostasy. Uh, failure to trust in God on Israel's part. Verse 14, uh, the Lord is warning that the Messiah will be a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling. And of course, the apostles picked up that uh, when they, in their preaching, uh, applying it to the rejection uh, of Jesus by the Jews. Jesus' cross was the ultimate divider of humanity, stumbling block to the Jews, to the Greeks' foolishness. The quote from verse 17 uh, just follows on from that, I will put my trust in him. In a time of chaos and apostasy, opposition, Isaiah will put his trust in him. But of course, the writer is applying it to the Lord Jesus who comes to us as our proper man and modeling what it is to trust in the Father in the midst of the unrelenting opposition that he experienced. We, as we place our trust in a Father who can work at all things for our good, are renewed in the image of our pioneer and made more and more into <coughs> his true humanity. And then the third quote follows on immediately from the previous one in Isaiah. Here am I and the children you have given me. This is lovely. Uh, first context again, it's Isaiah. And do you remember that uh, Isaiah had these two sons? Uh, <laughs> the one with the unpronounceable name. Uh, quick to the, the booty, swift to the spoil. Uh, it was telling the people... He was a walking sermon to the people that uh, the Babylonians were going to come and they were going to uh, bring on judgment. And then the other son, whose name pointed to a remnant surviving. And Isaiah uh, is speaking about his two sons. 
now, uh, in the dynamic of, the, the, of, of Revelation, the writer takes that up and applies it to, to Jesus. And here is Jesus, uh, who is not ashamed to call as brothers on that last day, when we all stand before the Father. He is going to declare to the Father, here I am, I have accomplished the work that you sent me to do, and I have the family that you promised to me. Uh, a family was promised, a people was promised, and here I am, and the children you have given me. What an amazing, staggering declaration. These are the elect children of God. If you're a believer tonight, you are a child of God. Not on the same level as Jesus, his son, but by adoption into the family, by union with Christ, you are a member of the family. And Jesus smiles upon you. And one day, he will present you to the Father with these words. Here I am, and here are the children you have given me. God bless his precious gospel to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>